welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wayne Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone. And your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all your brothers and sisters in spirit. And no matter the negative circumstances and deceptive appearances in the world, let us remember that there is still an abundance of love and positivity to be found on this earth. And it starts with each and every one of us. We must all look within ourselves first to our own mighty I Am Presence and drawing from the never-ending source all the love and light that we could ever require for ourselves, we must know also that we have enough overflow to love everyone else, regardless of the color of their skin, beliefs, or nationality. So, we are not without love. And the spirit of the living God never neglected to fill any of us with the full capacity to do so. As a result, when we begin to love according to the God-given capacity within us, those negative circumstances and those deceptive appearances will become minimal. Because love is powerful. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life. And y'all be loved. Jehoshua, whom we call Jesus, from the Greek form of his name, was probably born in Nazareth. It was certainly in this abandoned corner of Galilee that his childhood was passed, and the first, the greatest of the Christian mysteries accomplished, the appearance of the soul of the Christ. He was the son of Miriam, or Mary, wife of the carpenter Joseph, a Galilean woman of noble origin, affiliated to the Essenes. Legend has woven a tissue of marvels around the birth of Jesus. If legend gives refuge to numerous superstitions, it also at times conceals psychic truths but little known, for they are above the perception of the mass of mankind. One fact may be learned from the legendary history of Mary, that Jesus was a child consecrated before his birth to a prophetic mission, by the wish of his mother. The same thing is related of several heroes and prophets of the Old Testament. These sons thus dedicated to God were called Nazarenes. Touching this point, it is interesting to refer to the histories of Samson and of Samuel. An angel announces to Samson's mother that she will soon be with child, and will give birth to a son, whose head the razor shall not touch. In the case of Samuel, it is the mother who herself requests a child from God. Judges 13 3-5 and 1 Samuel 1-11-20 Now Samuel, in its original root signification, means, inner glory of God. The mother, feeling herself, as it were, illumined by the one she incarnated, considered him as the ethereal essence of the Lord. These passages are extremely important, as they introduce us to the esoteric, the constant and living tradition in Israel, 
and, along this channel, into the real signification of the Christian legend. Elkanah, the husband, is indeed the earthly father of Samuel in the flesh, but the Eternal is his heavenly father in the spirit. The figurative language of Judaic monotheism here, masks the doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul. The woman initiate appeals to a superior soul, demanding to receive it in her womb, and bring to birth a prophet. This doctrine, considerably veiled by the Jews, and completely absent from their official worship, formed part of the secret tradition of the initiates. It appears in the prophets. Jeremiah affirms it in the following terms, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Jesus will say the same to the scandalized Pharisees, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. How much of this can we apply in the case of Mary, the mother of Jesus? It appears that, in the first Christian communities, Jesus had been regarded as a son of Mary and Joseph, since Matthew gives us the genealogical tree of Joseph to prove that Jesus can trace his descent from David. At a later date, legend, anxious to show the supernatural origin of the Christ, wove her web of gold and azure, the history of Joseph and Mary, the Annunciation, and even the infancy of Mary in the temple. An attempt to discover the esoteric signification of Jewish tradition and Christian legend, would lead one to say that the action of providence, or the influx of the spiritual world which cooperates in the birth of any man, whoever he be, is more powerful and evident than the birth of all men of genius, whose appearance can in no way be explained by the sole law of physical atavism. This influx reaches its greatest intensity in the case of one of those divine prophets, destined to change the face of the world. The soul chosen for a divine mission comes from a divine world, it comes freely and consciously, but that it may enter upon an earthly life, a chosen vessel is needed, and the appeal of a highly gifted mother, who by the attitude of her moral being, the desire of her soul, and the purity of her life, has a presentiment, attracts and incarnates into her very blood and flesh, the soul of the Redeemer destined in the eyes of men to become a son of God. Such is the profound truth beneath the ancient idea of the Virgin Mother. The Hindu genius had already given expression to this idea in the legend of Krishna. The Gospels of Matthew and of Luke have rendered it with an even more admirable simplicity and poetic instinct. To the soul which comes from heaven, birth is a death, Empedocles had said 500 years BC. However sublime the spirit be, once imprisoned in flesh, it temporarily loses the remembrance of all its past, once engaged in corporal life, the development of its earthly consciousness is subjected to the laws of the world in which it incarnates. It falls under the force of the elements. The higher its origin, the greater will be the effort to regain its dormant powers, its celestial innatenesses, and to become conscious of its mission. Profound and tender souls need silence and peace to spring into manifestation. Jesus passed his early years amid the calm of Galilee. His first impressions were gentle, austere, and serene. His birthplace resembled a corner of heaven, dropped on the side of a mountain. The village of Nazareth has changed but little with the flight of time. Its houses rising in tears under the rock, resembled, so travelers say, white cubes scattered about in a forest of pomegranate, vine, and fig trees, while myriads of doves filled the heavens. Around this nest of verdant freshness floats the pure mountain air, while on the heights may be seen the open, clear horizon of Galilee. Add to this imposing background the quiet, solemn home life of a pious, patriarchal family. The strength of Jewish education lay always in the unity of law and faith, as well as in the powerful organization of the family, 
dominated by the national and religious idea. The paternal home was a kind of temple for the child. Instead of the grinning frescoes, the nymphs and fauns which adorned the atrium of the Greek houses, such as could be seen at Sephoris and Tiberias, there could be found in the Jewish houses only passages from the laws and the prophets, the stern, rigid texts standing out in Chaldean characters above the doors and upon the walls. But the union of father and mother in mutual love of their children, illumined and warmed the house with a distinctly spiritual life. It was there Jesus received his early instruction, and first became acquainted with the scriptures under the teaching of his parents. From his earliest childhood the long, strange destiny of the people of God appeared before him in the periodic feasts and holy days celebrated in family life by reading, song, and prayer. At the Feast of Tabernacles, a shed, made of myrtle and olive branches, was erected in the court or on the roof of the house in memory of the nomad patriarchs of bygone ages. The seven-branched candlestick was lit, and there were produced the rolls of papyrus from which the secret history was read aloud. To the child's mind, the Eternal was present, not merely in the starry sky, but even in this candlestick the reflex of His glory, in the speech of the Father, and the silent love of the Mother. Thus, Jesus was made acquainted with the great days in Israel's history, days of joy and sorrow, of triumph and exile, of numberless afflictions and eternal hope. The Father gave no reply to the child's eager and direct questions. But the Mother, raising those dreamy eyes from beneath their long dark lashes, and catching her son's questioning look, said to him, The word of God lives in his prophets alone. Jesus, The Last Great Initiate, by Edward Charest, 1908 Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Chapter 2 In a manuscript of the first century, a combination of the Demotic and Greek texts, and mostly probably one of the few which miraculously escaped the Christian vandalism of the second and third centuries, when all such precious manuscripts were burned as magical, we find occurring in several places a phrase, which, perhaps, may throw some light upon this question. One of the principal heroes of the manuscript who is constantly referred to as the Judean illuminator or initiate, is made to communicate but with his patar, the latter being written in Chaldaic characters. Once the latter word is coupled with the name Shimeon, several times, the illuminator, who rarely breaks his contemplative solitude, is shown inhabiting a cave, and teaching the multitudes of eager scholars standing outside, not orally, but through this patar. The latter receives the words of wisdom by applying his ear to a circular hole in a partition which conceals the teacher from the listeners, and then conveys them with explanations and glossaries to the crowd. This, with a slight change, was the method used by Pythagoras, who, as we know, never allowed his neophytes to see him during the years of probation, but instructed them from behind a curtain in his cave. But, whether the illuminator of the Greco-Demotic manuscript is identical with Jesus or not, the fact remains, that we find him selecting a mystery appellation for one who is made to appear later by the Catholic Church as the janitor of the Kingdom of Heaven, and the interpreter of Christ's will. The word Patar or Peter locates both master and disciple in the circle of initiation and connects them with the secret doctrine. The great hierophant of the ancient mysteries never allowed the candidates to see or hear him personally. He was the deus ex machina, the presiding but invisible deity, uttering his will and instructions through a second party, and, 2,000 years later, 
we discover that the Dalai Lamas of Tibet had been following for centuries the same traditional program during the most important religious mysteries of Lamaism. If Jesus knew the secret meaning of the title bestowed by him on Simon, then he must have been initiated, otherwise, he could not have learned it, and if he was an initiate of either the Pythagorean Essenes, the Chaldean Magi, or the Egyptian priests, then the doctrine taught by him was but a portion of the secret doctrine taught by the pagan hierophants to the few select adepts, admitted within the sacred adida. But we will discuss this question further on. For the present we will endeavor to briefly indicate the extraordinary similarity, or rather identity, we should say, of rites and ceremonial dress of the Christian clergy with that of the old Babylonians, Assyrians, Phoenicians, Egyptians, and other of the hoary antiquity. H.P. Blavatsky If we would find the model of the papal tiara, we must search the annals of the ancient Assyrian tablets. We invite the reader to give his attention to Dr. Inman's illustrated work, Ancient Pagan and Modern Christian Symbolism. On page 64, he will readily recognize the headgear of the successor of St. Peter in the coiffure worn by gods or angels in ancient Assyria, where it appears crowned by an emblem of the male trinity, the Christian cross. We may mention, in passing, adds Dr. Inman that, as the Romanists adopted the mitre of the tiara from the cursed brood of Ham, so they adopted the Episcopalian kirk from the augurs of Etruria, and the artistic form with which they clothe their angels from the painters and urn-makers of Magna Graecia and Central Italy. We would push our inquiries farther, and seek to ascertain as much in relation to the nimbus and the tonsure of the Catholic priest and monk. We shall find undeniable proofs that they are solar emblems. Knight, in his Old England pictorially illustrated, gives a drawing by St. Augustine, representing an ancient Christian bishop, in a dress probably identical with that worn by the great saint himself. The pallium, or the ancient stole of the bishop, is the feminine sign when worn by a priest in worship. On St. Augustine's picture it is bedecked with Buddhistic crosses, and in its whole appearance it is a representation of the Egyptian T, Tau, assuming slightly the figure of the letter Y. Its lower end is the mark of the masculine triad, says Inman. The right hand, of the figure, has the forefinger extended, like the Assyrian priests while doing homage to the grove. When a male dons the pallium in worship, he becomes the representative of the trinity in the unity, the arba, or mystic four. Immaculate is Our Lady Isis, is the legend around an engraving of Serapis and Isis, described by King, in the Gnostics and their remains, Eta Kappa Upsilon Rho Iota Alpha Iota C Iota C Alpha Gamma Nu Eta, the very terms applied afterwards to that personage, the Virgin Mary, who succeeded to her form, titles, symbols, rites, and ceremonies. Thus, her devotees carried into the new priesthood the former badges of their profession, the obligation to celibacy, the tonsure, and the surplice, omitting, unfortunately, the frequent ablutions prescribed by the ancient creed. The black virgins, so highly reverenced in certain French cathedrals, proved, when at last critically examined, basalt figures of Isis. H. P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 15 How do you feel when you offer someone help and it is refused? Are you to blame then for what happens to the person whom you're trying to help? We have offered and offered and offered. And every time any ascended master offers you help, any of the angelic host, 
any of the cosmic beings, it is always the sacred fire of our love. And our love is eternal purity. Our love is indestructible power. Our love is eternal protection. Why mankind won't reach up and accept it, call it into action, and let us anchor it and concentrate it to remove these conditions, shows you just how unfolded mankind is in the destructive forces of its own selfishness. Therefore, when we plead and plead with people and offer and offer these activities of the sacred fire that are master over everything in this world, mankind must awaken to the fact that it is our purifying love and our power of life that must come into these conditions if evil is to be conquered, if evil is to be annihilated, if evil is to be prevented from desecrating any more life in this world. So the very survival of mankind on this earth is dependent upon the angelic host. When mankind, century after century, has destroyed and destroyed and destroyed the many gifts that the great law of life has permitted to become manifest in this world, and then becomes enslaved to the creation of selfishness and destruction, you can see how dead asleep is the consciousness of the mankind of this world who will not reach up and accept the help we've offered, because from the beginning of mankind's embodiment on this earth, human beings in this world have been told repeatedly, age after age after age in every cycle, call unto me, and I will answer thee. So now you are either going to have the miracles of our sacred fire protecting love or you won't have the protection. When I made that statement, if necessary, the light of a thousand suns shall descend into the earth and dissolve and consume all human selfishness. That hour is now. You need it. And mankind won't wake up and call for it. Then you are helpless before the destructive forces the people of this world have generated through one war after another. So tonight, I come to bring you release and relief and to rescue you if you care to accept our presence with you. Applause. Thank you so much. Won't you be seated please, and just remain so. The Great Cosmic Angel. Mankind's ingratitude for the love and the blessings we have poured to this world, which most human beings take for granted, is the thing that has prevented the illumination coming to the intellect by which the individual could hold to the constructive way of life long enough to gain the freedom and victory of the ascension. But what think you is the action of the cosmic law when we who stand ready to consume mankind's frightful human creation, the frightful evil forces that are on this earth, and we beg and beg and beg people to accept our love and the reality of our presence with them, and ask them to call us into action so we can set you free, and then mankind does not respond. What think you is the action of the cosmic law? Mankind does not need to suffer unless it so chooses. The discord, the filth, and the destruction generated by mankind through one war after another, has reached a momentum that would destroy the earth itself, if it were not for the love of the higher mental body of each life stream and the love of the ascended host. And when that love is the sacred fire before which every destructive force must be dissolved and consumed and harmoniously, without suffering, we have offered and offered and offered, and now if the cosmic fiat has to go forth to shock mankind awake by the activities of nature of which we are master, the human beings of this world will want some assistance. Blessed ones, we come to offer you, our love. We have offered you the sacred fire. Whenever you think of the sacred fire, remember also to remind yourself, it is the purifying love of either the mighty I in presence or the ascended host. The angelic host are the beings who concentrate it, who call it forth from the physical sun and the great central sun. We call it forth from our temples of the sacred fire in the ascended master's octave. Those temples of the sacred fire are the cosmic concentration and momentum of our life's love that we have used down through the ages, to create one magnificent manifestation after another, that cannot do anything but bless life, and raise it into greater perfection. 
If the rest of mankind won't accept our presence and our reality, I come tonight to offer you again enough of the sacred fire's purifying love to be your security against the hordes of evil. If you will remember us, if you will associate with us, if you will dwell with us, if you will call to us, if you will accept our presence with you, and if you will use the love of the sacred fire which we bring, to compel the purification that must and shall dissolve and consume the hordes of evil, mankind has created. So, if you accept us, we will be present with you. Applause. Thank you so much. The Great Cosmic Angel.